Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And a lot of people say to me, well, how did you start your career? How did you work with all these celebrities? Like, da, 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 da. And the truth is, when I started doing Kriya Yoga, the core part of it is you stop flowing all your attention and energy into your peripheral nervous system all the time, which is looking at the numbers, looking at what people are doing, looking in the mirror, what you look like. And you learn to literally, what Yogananda says, turn the searchlights of your attention inward. So then you go into your spine and your brain. You go into your central nervous system. And this is where you connect to spirit through self, universe, whatever word you want to use. And then you make decisions from a very different place. You just feel propelled. You feel guided. So you stop. I mean, the ego still comes in, but there's less of this overthinking, analyzing, basing on all these charts and the numbers. Everything I was basing my thing, I wanted, why did I want to be a doctor? Because I thought people would think I was smart. Why was I eating this food? Because I read somewhere it would help me get skinny. It wasn't what my body needed, right? So it was when I started doing Kriya Yoga, it was like this river I entered. I started flowing. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show with yours truly, Light Watkins. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many other people who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And I really feel like I'm living the dream with this podcast because I get as much inspiration out of having these conversations as many of you get out of hearing them. And while I almost always leave these conversations with a nugget of wisdom or some reassurance that the world is full of goodness. Every now and again, I have a conversation that just lingers with me in a good way. And today's episode was one of those conversations. It's with a luminary named Kimberly Schneider. I've known Kimberly for years, but not super closely. I was on her Feel Good podcast, and we were both in the L.A. wellness scene for a long time. But when I got to do a deep dive into Kimberly's origin story, as often is the case, I was blown away by all of the experiences that helped to shape her path and that allowed her to become the wellness juggernaut that she is today. Long story short, Kimberly grew up in New England. She battled with eating disorders, which led her to see a nutritionist in college. And then that experience helped her discover the connection between food and mood. Then she traveled the world for a few years and ended up in India. And that's where she came across a book by autobiography of a yogi author, Paramahansa Yogananda. And it was one of those life-changing moments that completely altered her perspective on the nature of reality. She returns to this tiny studio apartment in New York City, and she begins blogging about her experiences, and she starts making food for people. Her blog got shared, and then celebrities started reaching out to her, 
and she became their nutritionist. Then she started writing books. She even co-authored a book with Deepak Chopra after bumping into him on the streets of New York. And that was a really cool story. At this point, Kimberly has written six books, all bestsellers. She's been all over television. She's a mom of two. She's got a platform called Suluna, which is a lifestyle brand focused on progress, not perfection. And now she splits her time with her family between Los Angeles and Hawaii. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And after hearing it, you're going to feel inspired to go after your dreams even more and to take those leaps of faith that are so important for staying on our path. And I feel like one of the themes of my conversation with Kimberly is the value and really the necessity of listening to your intuition and taking action on it. So without further ado, let us dive into this conversation with the incomparable Miss Kimberly Schneider. Kimberly, welcome to my podcast. So good to see you again. And to now the tables have turned. I was on your podcast before. Yes. And now you're the one answering questions. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to chat with you. It's been a little while with everything going on. So this is nice. Yeah. And you're someone who I've kind of known more peripherally, like we're not close friends, but we definitely have been in the same circles, the wellness circle in Los Angeles. But from afar, you appear to be a very connected, very successful wellness entrepreneur And so every time I do one of these interviews with someone such as yourself, it's always fascinating to read the backstory and see how everything sort of came together. So I would love to start with talking about little Kimberly. Did you have a nickname growing up, Kimberly? They call you Kimmy or Kim or anything like that? Kimbo. 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 (laughs) My dad still calls me that to this day. And I think there's like a wrestler or something. Yeah, Kimbo Slice. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. No, definitely not that vibe, but it was this, yeah, just like the natural nickname I think I always had growing up. So little Kimbo growing up in New England, what was the vibe like in your house growing up? So the vibe, and I I make that sound because (laughs) be honest, when I look back on my childhood, I, I feel... Ooh, like a lot of struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So I had an immigrant mother. She came from the Philippines on a academic scholarship. So she was very, you know, that class, like you want the best for your family, but it's a lot of focus on education and wanting more material things. So when I was three, my parents, we moved from New Jersey to Connecticut because the school systems were good and it seemed like a nice place to raise kids. But I always looked different And the place where I grew up was 100% Caucasian, except for me, who was labeled the exotic one. And I really didn't want to stand out. I was a shy child. And it was the the system, the teachers, every time we studied something like World War II, the teachers would say, oh, aren't you, maybe you're Japanese, or we studied Native Americans. And they were like, oh, you're Native American. So I was just sort of this other. And it Mm -hmm. made me very hyper-focused about feeling different. So I was focused on the outside, which eventually led to things like eating disorders, trying to control how I looked. I remember my first prom, first time I got makeup done, I was, I said to them, Oh, can you make my eyes look more round? Because I was very conscious that my eyes, my Asian eyes looked different. And so I never felt really comfortable in myself and I really wanted to get out. 
So I went to college in a city. I went to college in Washington, D.C., to Georgetown. And, you know, the story goes on and on life, but I, I, you know, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a doctor because it seemed like a really prestigious thing to do. But in college, I ended up interning in a hospital one summer and I realized it didn't really feel good to me. So then the story opens up. We can get into that later. I ended up backpacking for three years around the world, which was like the opposite of my upbringing. And that just changed the whole course of my life. I want to rewind it a little bit. Georgetown is not an easy school to get into. So you must have been a very studious young person, right? Would you say, would you characterize yourself as that? Were you, were you like at the top of your class or how did that? So it's funny because the fifth book that I wrote is called Recipes for Your Perfectly Imperfect Life. And this was Mm -hmm. really inspired from taking a look and saying, oh my gosh, my whole life, I've been such a perfectionist, very numbers focused, which is funny because now when I write, it's going beyond numbers, right? So I was hyper (laughs) fixated on calories, again, weight, the eating disorders came in, my rank in the class. It was either I got a hundred or an A plus or it was, I was a failure. So it was very much numbers driven. It gave me validation. And this continued until my break from it, which I would say was during those backpacking years. So everything was based on numbers. And so, yes, I was obsessed with getting, you know, I got 800 in the verbal of the SATs and I I got a really high number in the math part, but it wasn't 800. It was like 710. So I was like, I got to get an 800 on my SATs. Everything was like this pushing and this pushing and the numbers gave me a sense of stability because I realized I didn't have an internal anchor. So it was the numbers that I was clinging to a lot at that time. What were some of your extracurricular activities that no one told you to do or focus on, but you just kind of on your own organically found yourself drawn to? So we grew up in a fairly rural place. We had four acres. And so I was always drawn to the forest. I was always outside. I was always in the trees, always playing in the, you know, games outside. And even, you know, through high school, middle school, we had access to trails. And I remember feeling really stressed out. I wouldn't have used that term back then, but there was a lot of anxiety and I would always just go outside. So I was by myself a lot. I had some friends, but I just remember being drawn to hanging out outside. We had a dog. (laughs) So picking things, playing in the leaves, being with the trees, that really made me feel safe. Were you by yourself or who were you playing with? So I was by myself a lot. I had a sister but she was very introverted as well. So she would like to be inside and she was in her room and she was into fashion. She was into very different things. Whereas I was always just outside. And so my parents mm. always knew where to find me. We grew up with an auntie from the Philippines and she would always just call my name when it was time to eat dinner outside because I felt more comfortable being outside by myself. The anorexia and the bulimia I'm assuming you hit that from as many people as you could, right? Or did you confide in your sister or was there someone that you confided in with that? No. So there was a, you know, really dark time. It was from when I was 15 to 16. And I didn't realize, you know, now I've studied so much about eating disorders and perfectionism later in life, but it is about this sense of control and also not being able to metabolize and digest feelings. And so what would happen, Light, is that I would feel overwhelmed 
from school after playing sports. I did get into sports later in life, particularly track. And of course, mm -hmm. I wanted to be the best runner, but I would actually vomit and it's going to be graphic, but I would throw up into pots and jars and I would hide it underneath my bed. And then mm -hmm. in the middle of the night when no one was around, I would flush it down. I would hide the evidence and it was this real loneliness this darkness. I didn't want people to know, it would, you know, disrupt my facade, my perfectionism. And so it wasn't until later that it started coming out. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. It takes a bit of fearlessness, I guess, and courage to be on your own and playing outside a lot. And this is a probably a different side to that same degree of fearlessness in hiding this thing that was such a big part of your life between the yeah. ages of 15 and 16. Did you see it as a problem or did you see it as something that, you know, I just have to get through. I just have to do this in order to achieve my, my goals. No one would understand it. Yeah. At the time I felt just so lonely and, and helpless. And I love my parents. You know, they're amazing people. My mom has passed away. They were doing their best. They were working really mm -hmm. hard. We didn't have a lot of financial security, so they were hustling. And so a lot of the times I just felt on my own and there was this just such disconnection. So a lot of shame. Like I can say there was a lot of that, you know, externally and I felt embarrassed for looking different and then I wasn't connected on the inside. So I felt like, you know, on a level, it was a shameful thing to do and I didn't want people to know about it, but I didn't know how to deal with the feelings I was having inside, which now I would say just, you know, just so much loneliness, feelings of abandonment, feelings of disconnection. And I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any practices I grew up Catholic, so we went to church once a week, and I felt connected to Jesus, but I didn't really feel connected to the church, so I didn't really mm -hmm. have that going on either. 
And then my sister was like on her own journey. So I didn't really have that close <laughs> sibling relationship either. So the binging and the purging just came this way of dealing with those feelings. It was like a tool that didn't really work, but it, it went on for some years. How are you thinking about success at that stage in your life, just before you went to Georgetown? I mean, you said your parents were hustling. They weren't very financially stable. So what did you feel like you saw for yourself in, the, in those next five or 10 years? Yes. So again, it went back to numbers. I think I didn't have this sense of, you know, what we would talk about now is the true self, just being connected as real success. So it was, Mm -hmm. what is my rank in the class? I'm going to go to a top school and then I'm going to get a job where I make high income. And it was all really rotating around a set of numbers. And this is how I'm going to show people I'm successful. So in those years, like when I was, you know, really battling with eating disorders, my whole focus was making the top 10 in my class because it meant your picture got put in the local newspaper. These are the top 10 people. Here's where they're going to college. So it was this real validation in I'm smart. I can be seen, right? For me, it was all about academics. It was all about how smart I was. And if people said, oh, you're exotic or you're pretty, I felt like that was a real insult because I didn't want to be seen as someone, you know, People would focus on looks or appearance or even focus on that. And I think there was a lot of ancestral stuff around that. My grandmother, my mother were very academically focused. So I wanted to please, I wanted to be validated. So in my family, it was very much about brains and smarts and jobs. My mom worked on Wall Street and she you know, had this big financial career. So it was very much that part. And then this rejection of anything else, like anything, creativity or anything in that realm as well. In college, you decided to take an opportunity in Australia, your junior year? Yes. So then I ended up studying abroad. And first it was like, oh, wow, I'm going to the city for college. And then I got into this dorm and I lived with friends and I started partying and I started saying, oh, wow, there's started to relax in some ways. And then I saw this opportunity to study abroad. And that really was the beginning, I think, of (laughs) a whole other journey. Because when I was studying abroad, I took my first trip to Asia, which was to Bali. And I remember standing outside the airport and looking around at people, you know, families of five people, seven people with their pets on these motor scooters and just this Mm -hmm. very different way of life, you know, burning incense in these little temples outside homes. And I could just feel like my soul just growing and saying, oh my gosh, life doesn't have to be lived in this really constricted way. And so that was the beginning of wanting to go out. I didn't want to do grad school anymore. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but then I think that was the precursor to then the backpacking and then where my whole philosophy was formed on the road, really. And of course, I did more formal education after that, but it really was the beginning of the freedom journey, I would say. You didn't have any language for it at the time, right? Like that feeling that you had when you saw the Bali lifestyle and that expansiveness, you just felt like, oh, I'm curious about this. It was a feeling like, you know, I get, I would never have used the word enlightenment. I would never have used the word seeker. None of this spiritual language was there. It was just this, huh, like this opening, right? I felt before like I was in a straitjacket all the time, which is why I write so much about the difference between the experiential and being bound by numbers, especially with women and people in general. It's like, 
How much have I achieved by a certain age? How much do I weigh? How much money do I have? How many followers do I have? So it was all these numbers and just this focus. And then when I started breaking out and feeling that on the road, and when I started going to Asia, Asia and Africa were the main places I traveled, I just had this feeling inside of me, which then propelled me to keep learning. And then the language came later. I want to talk about one other part, which is you yes. being this nutritionist, because you said in college, you kind of let yourself go. You started eating pizza and all kinds of oh, crazy yeah. stuff. <laughs> oh, yes. And then you learned about the relationship between food and mood. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So it was like I swung from, so I never actually got formal help for the eating disorder. It was the mm -hmm. will, the mind. I just sort of, I started throwing up blood. And then there was this point where I started saying, oh my gosh, like I'm really harming my body. My parents still didn't really know what was going on, but it just sort of phased out. And then I went to college and then another very unhealthy pattern came in, which was excessive drinking. I got really into alcohol and I was still studying really hard, but it was that work hard, play hard mentality. And I started eating pizza and, you know, that with the beer, I gained quite a bit of weight and my skin was breaking out and my hair stopped growing and I really didn't have any energy, but I was having fun. And so this kept going until after I graduated. And then at a certain point, I went back to Australia. I had an internship mm -hmm. at a marketing company. So I knew it wasn't going to be a doctor. I still didn't know what life had in store for me, but I said, oh, I felt really good there and I can save money. I can travel a bit. So then I went back to Australia and I was working at this office and I was like slugging through every day with diet soda and coffee. And I just felt like crap. You know, I was partying at night. So that was kind of the band aid. But then I saw this little flyer and it was for this nutritionist and Something about it, she was talking about detoxing, which I didn't know anything about. So anyways, I went and met with her. And the first thing she said to me is, well, how is your digestion and how often are you going to the bathroom? And I remember feeling really agitated. And I said, I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about how to lose weight, how I can do this dieting the right way. Because I was trying all these different diets, you know, like high carb, you know, low carb high protein, all this stuff that would work for a little while, but then it never really stuck. And I still felt really low energy. And what she said to me is, this is all related. Digestion is really related to the weight loss. It's related to how you feel. And I remember thinking, oh, because at that point, everything was in these little buckets. Like, here's how I'm going to take care of my body. And here's how I'm going to be successful. And here's how I'm going to make money. And like, da, 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 versus this holism. And so mm -hmm. it was like this little light bulb went off and I didn't work with her for long, but I really credit her with expanding my mind into this idea of, oh, digestion is connected to my moods and how I feel. And then later when I went backpacking and when I spent months and months in India and started reading the Bhagavad Gita and starting Ayurveda, I said, oh my gosh, they talk so much about food because it affects meditation. It affects your energy. And so I started becoming plant-based because of the reasons of meditation and pursuing a spiritual path. And then later I became a nutritionist. I started working with all these different people. I learned about the environmental reasons, but it really started light from this, oh, this light bulb of this is how I can feel better within myself on all these levels. You went backpacking by yourself, which is a pretty 
bold thing to do as a young woman, right? Especially when you go to places like Africa, which is, yes, um, you don't see a lot of people traveling by themselves, much less young, young women. What was the inspiration behind that? And why did you stay so long on the road? Were you running away from something or were you just so curious about these different cultures? <laughs> it's so funny because at the time it was like one extreme to the next, right? It was like I had these eating disorders. Then I started just partying like crazy and gaining weight. And then I was mm-hmm. living this very like rigid contained life. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go on the road. And so I didn't have a plan. So it started off like, oh, I'm just going to go to what I consider the easiest place in the world to travel by yourself, which is Thailand and Southeast Asia, because everything is guest houses and it's inexpensive. You meet other travelers. And it was like this doorway started to open up, right? This little crack of light. And I said, oh, this is amazing. You know, I'd meet these Irish people. And next thing I know, I'm on a motorcycle on the way to Laos. And then I'd meet these, I met four Israeli girls and they're like, come with us to Cambodia. And then I met this Argentinian girl and she was like, come with me to Southwest China. So it was just like I was flowing and I was really going with this feeling. It was like the door was opened. Right. And so I was doing it. Like I didn't know I could do it so inexpensively. And so I had saved that money being in Australia for a year. I didn't realize life could be like this. So I started going a little further and I started going to places that were a little bit harder to travel, like India. And then I went to Kashmir, which was very interesting. And then I went to China for a couple months. And what happened was when you're in Australia, you can buy an around the world ticket as long as you go in one direction, very inexpensively. So I did a loop and then I said to myself, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to, to end yet. So the second loop, the, when I got my feet wet, that's when I went to Africa, which was much harder. I bought a car for $4,000 in Johannesburg and I lived out. What of kind my- of car was it that you bought? It was a Ford Focus. <laughs> it was <laughs> not Focus. a, you know, a four by four. It got really beat up, but I sold it at the end. And you would that. sleep in it sometimes. I slept That's in it. You- I, I slept out of it most of the time. I, I had a tent and I would play Bob Marley and I would get to these villages and I would say, you know, can I sleep in your village? I was chased by a wild elephant twice. I got three flat tires in the middle of the Namib desert and I had four days. Was your mom her. freaking out or did you not tell her all this stuff? So when I was in Asia, she, you know, and there was a point I was in Vietnam and she started reading about landmines in Cambodia. And then she got so stressed out. My dad said she was just so stressed out all the time. What she said to me is like, well, just don't go to Africa no matter what. And I was like, oh, that's where I'm going next. Cause she felt like it was this big, scary place. And it's true. There were weeks at a time where I didn't have Wi-Fi, I couldn't get in touch with them. So this is where she had to really go into her faith. She said she was praying for me every day. I'm sure now I'm a parent and I think, oh my gosh, I hope my kids don't do what I did because I really, I mean, I look back and it got to the point where, I don't know, I had so much faith and fearlessness and I really believed nothing bad would ever happen. And crazy mm. things happened all around me. I could go on and on about the boat that imploded in Cambodia that I was supposed to be on. I got on a second one 20 minutes later and people had to break glass to get out and there were like dead bodies floating and we pulled survivors on our boat and just crazy stuff happened all around. I believe there were angels around me as a woman, especially traveling alone. You went to 57 countries, I believe, and, and you have yeah. to get in tune with your intuition. That's what all that traveling does is it makes you sort of hyper present 
And when you're yes. hyper present in that way, you can't help but feel if something, if an experience or if a person is aligned with you. That's been my experience. Is that, is that how you were feeling as well? You hit it right on the headlight when you said intuition, because before that, again, it was this, oh, here are these numbers to tell me this is right or to tell me this is what I should be eating. This is the number of grams of carbs or sugar, or I should take this class because it'll help my GPA. It was all numbers. And when I went on the road, it was the first time it forced me into myself, into this really connecting to this feeling that I didn't have a word for, but you're right. I would feel it. Oh, I met this person at the ashram in India and I really feel like I can trust this person or this doesn't feel right to me. I'm getting off this bus, right? And I can't tell you there were bus crashes and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff happened. And it was this feeling that kept me safe. I would say next to meditation, traveling in the way you travel was probably the best way to get in tune with your intuition. hundred percent. And doing it in this, at the time, I was so scared to travel by myself light. It was mm-hmm. terrifying. I had this backpack. And I just had myself, it was like, I was like a turtle shell. Like my whole world is on my back. But then I started and when it's like this snowball rolling down the hill, you realize like, I can do this. And I wouldn't start in the hardest places. So Africa, rural China, Northern India, (laughs) save that until you really get your feet wet. Like go to, like I said, the easier places like Thailand and Australia. But then I started realizing, oh, I am safe and secure because I have this intuition, because I rely on myself, not because Mm -hmm. I can control everything outside, but I know I can take care of myself. Let's talk about Rishikesh, where you first crossed paths with Yogananda's work, since that leads to your current book. So I remember feeling in India. It's this feeling in India. You either hate it or you love it. It's so intense. It's so intense. (laughs) There's no place like India. No place. Even Africa. I get goosebumps (laughs) even talking about it. Like it's like there's the touching, right? I go the first time I went to the Durga temple in Varanasi, everybody's touching you. And I'm like, oh my God, like putting the bindis on and the smells and the bells and the incense. And it's very Mm -hmm. intense. And Mm -hmm. I just felt, oh, I love this. Something about it that made me feel awake. But then I started having these thoughts of, hmm, I'm really interested in yoga and meditation, but does this mean I'm converting to Hinduism? Am I not going to be a Christian anymore? Like, and I wasn't really practicing. Like I said, I sort of disconnected from the church, but I, I remember feeling really confused. And I was traveling there for a few months and I was going around. I was really open. I was really exhilarated, but I had all these thoughts. And so then I was in Rishikesh, as I mentioned, and I wandered into this bookstore and I found Guruji. I found Yogananda's books. And I remember I had never heard of him. I started flipping it open. I started reading. And now I would describe it like a like kind of a Kundalini moment where this fire went in my spine. And I was like, oh my gosh, truth. Like this is truth, right? And he was talking about oneness and he was talking about Jesus and Krishna in the same context and saying there's many ways up the mountain to God, to spirit, to universe. But underneath it all is this underlying energy. We are all one, these unifying principles. And so in that time, it all made sense to me. It's like, I don't have to pick a specific way. I believe in love. I believe in oneness. And Yogananda was the way when he put on the altar, Jesus and Krishna and Babaji. And these, he's saying, you know, these religions at the core, they're saying the same thing. 
And you don't have to be religious. You can just connect in to the light inside of you, the true self, spirit individualized inside of you. So when I found that path, then I started going really deep in to yoga and meditation. And that's when I started changing the way that I ate. And I started being aware of these principles of sattvic, which we can talk about eating to feel centered and harmonious. And it just blew my mind open. And from that day forward, when I started doing Kriya Yoga, everything started to unfold, including writing the books. Was this your first spiritual book that you read? Or where does this fall in line with your now intentional spiritual journey? Yes. So before I read about the saints, I read the Bible. I read very Western Christian books. That was the first time that I really got into yoga and actually started reading the books about, and then then I got into the Vedas. And so I started reading the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. So I read the first little book of Yogananda's was how to talk to God. And then I got into autobiography of a yogi and the deeper books, but it was that little leaflet. I mean, I had read some books around Buddhism and the Dalai Lama, but it was very peripheral. Like, you know, it was just, it was like surfacey. But when I found Yogananda, it was like, <sighs> like I'm on this train and this train is really going deep. It's a major gateway book, autobiography of a yogi. And what's interesting is that your backpacking journey was kind of symbolic of that same thing that he talked about that he did in India. And so when you came back, is that when you started the lessons? Because you have to get those yes. mailed. To, I, I did those two back in 2000 and really? 2002. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I did all the lessons. I read the book. I got turned out. I moved to Los Angeles. Couldn't wow. wait to go to the Self-Realization Fellowship and started going there every Sunday, sitting with the monks and everything. Yes. And I did it. I did it all the way through until they Great talked idea. about how, yeah, you have to go to the monastery. And I was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a celibate monk. That's oh, where I yeah. Well, it, went, it goes through to where you, you get the Kriya initiation from yeah. one of the monks. And so then- I didn't, I didn't get that far in it, but I, I got yes. pretty far in the beginning yes. stages of it. And I really, really Incredible. enjoyed it. I mean, it was so just the way he would describe everything and it was very relatable and accessible and just inspiring, inspired. So yeah, you were doing that. You were in New York city when you were getting the lessons. Yeah, so exactly. And I ended up going back to India some years later and I used autobiography actually as the guidebook. So I went no way. You went to all those places, all the places, um, Mandir and Lahiri Mahashaya's, family home in Varanasi. And I went to Guruji's place in Calcutta, his childhood home. You can go up into the attic. Was this a tour that you created or is this something that someone has already created based off of the book? No, I went with my partner at the time, just the two of us. Did you have any kind of fun experiences? So I'll say that it was incredible. I felt very close to Babaji in that mm-hmm. trip, you can sit in the cave, you know, all these experiences, it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But to answer your question, I did get back to New York City and I was broke. 
I was, you know, I had a little <laughs> bit of money. I had, I found this rent control department, like the last little shred of faith was I'm going to get this. And one of these jobs is going to pan out. And I remember walking around New York city and eating three oranges for $1 for lunch, because I read a study that oranges are the fruit that keep you fullest the longest. And I remember mm -hmm. I still had my flip-flops. I didn't, I didn't buy shoes and I'm the one that chose to go backpacking. I didn't, I was too proud to like beg money from my parents or any family member. And I remember I got the lessons and I remember sitting on the edge of my Murphy bed and I would just start to do them in a really deep way. I had a little altar in the windowsill. So this is why I started to teach yoga, I was teaching asanas. So I started to make some money because I was teaching privates. I was teaching group classes. I was going back to nutrition school. Was that after you studied with Dharma Mitra or before you started studying with him? So Dharma was where I did my first initial yoga training. And then I started mm -hmm. doing some subsequent trainings with Shiva Ray. But yeah, right when I started doing dharmas, it started to flow in just yoga privates. And so then I was starting to make money from doing nutritional consults. And then I started a free blog. I don't know how deep you want to go in the story, but it was from when I started doing Kriya Yoga things started happening. You started feeling like, okay, I'm feeling like I should be doing the blog or I feel like I should be studying with this. Like you started, basically you exported that present moment awareness from your trip into a way of life, a lifestyle and stopped. Yes. You got kind of got out of the number focused decision-making and yes. started getting into heart focused decision-making. Exactly. So this is the key. And a lot of people say to me, well, how did you start your career? How did you work with all these celebrities? Like da, 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 da. And the truth is, when I started doing Kriya Yoga, the core part of it is you stop flowing all your attention and energy into your peripheral nervous system all the time, which is looking at the numbers, looking at what people are doing, looking in the mirror, what you look like. And you learn to literally, what Yogananda says, turn the searchlights of your attention inward. So then you go into your spine and your brain. You go into your central nervous system. And this is where you connect to spirit, true self, universe, whatever word you want to use. And then you make decisions from a very different place. You just feel propelled. You feel guided. So you'd stop. I mean, the, the ego still comes in, but there's less of this overthinking, analyzing, basing on all these, like, you know, these charts and the numbers, everything I was basing my thing. I wanted, why did I want to be a doctor? Because I thought people would think I was smart. Why was mm -hmm. I eating this food? Because I read somewhere it would help me get skinny. It, was, it wasn't what my body needed, right? So it was when I started doing Kriya Yoga, it was like this river I entered. I started flowing. And so I had this idea, oh, I want to share some of this incredible stuff I saw in Africa and Asia and a little bit Eastern Europe and South America, but primarily these two continents. So it was this idea of sharing. And really to this day, that's what it was. But I started sharing in this free blog light. And all I did was share with my yoga students and my classes would get full but the blog started spreading through New York City, and I wasn't trying to monetize it at the time. I knew nothing about SEO or marketing, nothing about selling ads. I was just coming from this really deep place of sharing. And then it started to spread, and then my first celebrity found me through the blog. And I will say, to this day, I do not, I'm not drawn to screens, so I still don't own a TV, I don't own an iPad, I don't watch movies, <laughs> but I got on this film set and then I was just sharing and then suddenly other actors found me and then the next whew, into this river without intending it, the next six years of my life were working with a lot of these big celebrities and traveling with them and living with them for four months at a time, shooting films and doing press tours. 
you know, people like Reese Witherspoon and Channing Tatum and Drew Barrymore and Vince Vaughn. And people would say, oh my God, I can't believe you're working with such and such. And I was like, to me, they're just a normal person. And then from there, I was doing regularly Dr. Oz started coming and then Good Morning America. And then the book deal started coming. And then there was no intention like, really, I was doing my Kriya Yoga. I was really reading Yogananda. And then I was just saying, because I would, at the beginning, I would question, like, why am I working in Hollywood? Because I'm not drawn to this world. But then there's this part where Yogananda says, you go where you're called. And when I was working with these clients, it was never just about the food. It really was teaching about meditation and you know emotional processing and connecting in and all the things that I talk about now in my business, which is called the four cornerstones, food, body, emotional well-being, and spiritual growth. So for me, it was this training of working with all different kinds of people, getting to live with different kinds of people, and just trusting more and more this intuition. Like life was just unfolding, and I felt like I was along for the ride. So this is yeah. a free blog. You're obviously providing value to people, right? Do you remember which post you wrote about, which then attracted the attention of this celebrity that hired you? Do you remember what you were kind of talking about at that time and maybe why they connected to that particular writing? So at the time I was trying to post almost every day or every okay. other day. And I loved writing. So there was this flow and it was always this mix of travel. So I talked a lot about things I learned in different countries and it always was around these cornerstones. It was food, but it was beauty and what I saw in these African women and women in Zimbabwe and Mongolia, this different kind of beauty, this energy, this radiance. And I would talk a lot about India. I would talk a lot about meditation and how I was feeling more free. So it was this mix all the time. So I don't know if it was one particular blog, but I think after a while reading it, she's like, oh, I like this vibe. And then she came in and it was so unintentional though, really. I'd be walking down the street and this ginkgo biloba leaf would flow down and be like, oh, that reminds me of the time I saw this, you know, in another country. And so I would write in notebooks and then I would just put it on the blog. And so there wasn't a plan. There wasn't like, here's my schedule to plan to write. What was the word count, generally speaking? Oh my God, so detailed. Like I would say every blog was 500 to 1,000 words. Sometimes it would that's, be more. Every day, 500 to 1,000 words is significant. That's like two, three hours a day of writing and editing. So sometimes I would get these comments with nitpicky people being like, oh, there were some typos here. And yeah, say, try writing well, a blog every yeah. day. I would just and say, see how hey, many typos you have. Exactly. I was just like excited to share and sorry, there's typos sometimes, but it really was unfiltered. Mm -hmm. And then there were times in my career later on where I would like think too much and it would constrict. And then I would always say, remember when you were just totally free and go back to that. Cause that's where I started. And that's always where the best stuff comes from. Mm -hmm. Cause there was this moment I remember like where I, you know, not the first, but like the third or fourth time I went on Dr. Oz and he was saying Kimberly Snyder's glowing green smoothie, which is the signature recipe that I put out. It was in my first book and stuff. And I remember at the time I was in this same apartment, this kitchenette, this rent controlled apartment in the West Village that didn't even have a full kitchen. But I remember there was a time where I was cooking and making food for all these celebrities. They're all eating different foods. So like the top of the fridge was a counter. I was making food for Fergie, 
Ben Stiller, Drew Barrymore, and Channing at the time. There were four of them in that rotation. And the Glow and Green smoothie was something that I randomly, at the time I had spinach and banana, and I put it together. And it was inspired by Ann Wigmore. So I did Ann, Dr. Ann Wigmore trainings in, the, in Puerto Rico. She was someone that really proponent of raw food. So there was two years I was a raw foodist. But anyways, she was all about blending for better digestion. So it was just like in this random tiny kitchenette, I was experimenting. And when I went on Dr. Oz, and I remember there's a live audience, but I'm sure you had this moment like where he said, the glowing green smoothie. And it was like time stopped and it slowed down. And I remember thinking, how is this happening? How am I on national television right now? How is he talking about my stuff? How did any of this happen? And I get goosebumps to this day. And I was like, I was just backpacking. Then I started meditating and all this stuff just started showing up. And I know some people, like, people say that, but it, I can honestly say like, like that is really how it happened. And then I just remember it was like he was talking and then I was like, oh my God, I have to say something now. So I kind of came out of that moment. But it's like when Eckhart Tolle talks about like a moment expanded in time, like it really does like kind of contract and expand. And it's interesting. You know, I don't really have a point. I love that you're going into all this detail. The reason I like to go into this detail is because on a typical interview, they hear, okay, I was meditating. And then next thing I know, Channing Tatum reached out to me. It's like, no, 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 hold on. She was writing a thousand words a day. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Expressing herself no, no. every day. And you've had a history from going to Georgetown of, you know, really trying to be in the top 10, top five uh, no, I percent. Wonder, I, yeah. Thank you, Light, because this is not where, you know, woohoo, law of attraction, you want to buy yeah. it, up at your door. Oh, I want to do the Yogananda so I can get it. No, that's not how. No, 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 that's, no. That's just one aspect of it. Yogananda talk, one of the key principles that Yogananda talks about is using your will, right? So it's this mm -hmm. idea, we are co-creating with spirit, meaning we can create something that no one else can, but you need to direct your energy. You can't just sit back. He is a big proponent of create, create make mistakes, pick yourself up. So yes, thank you. I was writing every day and I had this insight, this idea of, oh, I do want to write a book. And so I remember at the time I went to Barnes and Noble and I got these books on putting together like a manuscript and sending it out to agents. So I did that on my own and it was all sort of happening. I wrote sample chapters. I would sit at night. I was writing every day. So yes, to your point, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden this person just came into my life. I was putting it out there, but I was putting it out there in a connected way. Like, this is what I care about. This is my perspective. I'm not saying it's the only perspective, but this is what I want to share. And eventually, I think that repeated action of passion and will and just doing it instead of getting caught up in the doubt, that is where things started unfolding. So thank you for saying that. little bit about what you had to do to kind of step into your own abundance mentality. Cause I'm sure you had imposter syndrome. You were living in this little tiny, this little tiny studio apartment and you're cooking for all these celebrities. Did you feel yes. like, Oh, how do I charge them? Or how much money do I ask? Or what's my worth? And like, how did you navigate that? 
So it was pretty wild. I remember getting my first, <laughs> you know, my first book advance. And at the time it felt like, oh my God, like just so much money. But then I got my second book advance, which was like 10 times that, right? So there was this jump. And then you're right. Like when I started working with them and then the studios were paying, there was a lot of imposter syndrome. There was a lot of, can I really like charge this much? Am I worth this much? And there was like dark periods, like the ego definitely came in and there was a lot of internal struggle. Like I said, in the beginning, I was so free and so carefree and so fearless. And when you start getting attention, when you start tasting a little bit of success, the ego does come in in a big way. So then there was overthinking that came in. And so there was a lot of darkness, I would say like in lonely times and, and periods. And all I can say is that through it all, Guruji Yogananda was there. And there were times where I went away a little bit and I did dip into a little bit more partying afterwards, which went away for a long time. But then I'd come back and then anchor back in. And so it was, it was like a, you know, there, it's not to say the spiritual path is linear. Like we know that, like there's regression. And then there's like, I would look and I'd say, oh, like this isn't doing as well. Or like, you know, my third book didn't do as well as my second book. Like what's happening? And then I would see mm -hmm. it was so clear that I was overthinking things. So then I would remember, like I said, remember when you were really free or ever when you were this backpacker and I would keep going back. And a big part for me, light is that central lesson I was saying, which is peripheral to central. When I overthink, it's like I'm looking at book sales too much. I'm looking at the bestseller list. I'm looking at the numbers. I'm da -da -da -da. And when I do that, everything stagnates. So for me, it's the lesson of go back in, go to intuition. This is where my best writing comes from. Like just meditate, go deep, take a couple days of silence, reprogram yourself, cut off so much news, social media, just keep going back in. When I go into my center, that's always where the magic comes from. So you start writing some books, getting some decent <laughs> book deals. You know, I, I interviewed Sahara Rose, who I'm sure you know. Yes. And she has a great Deepak story. I want you to share your Deepak story, how you first connected with him, because it, again, it's about tapping into your intuition and following that guidance. So with my first and second book, I remember thinking, oh, you know, it's, when you're a new author, it is really good. And it is important to have quotes by people that Thought leaders are, in the industry. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So for those first few books, I targeted Dr. Oz. I targeted Drew Barrymore, who is still a client to this day. We have a you know, really long-term, beautiful relationship. Then I started taking a real turn after my second book. When I first wrote my first book manuscript, it was for a book called Catching the Fire. And it was about the teachings and the stories that are in this book. A lot of them, of course, I've gone deeper now. And my agent at the time, so my first publisher was Harper Collins. And she said, Oh, she looked at my blog and she's like, it looks like people are, you know, really excited about your recipes and your food. So why don't we write this spiritual book second? But first we'll write the food book. So it was never my intention to write a food book first, but the first book was a food book. It was called the beauty detox solution and it took off. So then the second book was another food book called the beauty detox foods. 
And so by the third book, I said, I want to go more into this holistic and the spiritual context because I've always said it's not just about the food. It's one aspect of lifestyle along with spiritual, emotional, body connection. So the third book was called The Beauty Detox Power. And it was about chakras. It was about food, but energy and meditation. And so I said to myself, who's the best person to get a quote for this book? Hmm. Deepak Chopra, because I had read some of his books and I liked how he was bridging Eastern and Western philosophy. So the first thing I did was I sent him the book, the manuscript, and I didn't hear anything. I just like generic. I didn't know anybody in the office. I just sent it to his office. But then I found this email and I like I literally started emailing and being like, oh, I'm an author. And then now I was a New York Times bestselling author. I was like, I would you know, love a quote from Deepak and blah, blah. This went on for months and it went on to the point where they were about to publish the, you know, print the book. And I, so I was kind of like, oh, I'll have these other people's quotes. And then at the last minute, I get this email from his office saying, oh, Deepak has read your book. And he loves it. And he will give you a quote. This is after literally eight months of, again, back to like action, following up, emailing over and over again, and never just abandoning ship, right? How many times would you say you emailed them over those eight months? Oh, I mean, over 20. Really? At least. How many responses did you get back? Zero. (laughs) Zero. Until... This break really, and I remember I was in my parents' house when the email came through, and I was dancing around the basement. My, my dad and I were down there doing something, and my mom came down the stairs. She's like, "What are you so excited about?" And I was like, "Divine Chopra is going to give me a quote." And so it was so exciting. But so that's the first part of the story. But the second part of the story is I felt in my intuition that I was meant to collaborate with him more than just a quote, right? So I just felt it, and I was like, "I know there's something more we're supposed to do." And I was meditating on it, and I was visualizing it. Then I was in New York City at the time, and I talk about this in the new book, in the magnetism chapter, where I was supposed to go to a meeting, which is on the directly diagonal across Union Square. And for some reason, I felt to go kind of this other route, north. And who do I run into on the sidewalk? Deepak. And so I went up to him and I was like, Deepak, it's Kimberly Snyder. You just reviewed my book. And he was like, oh, yes, Kimberly. So we connected And he gave me his cell phone. So then I texted him and he's like, let's meet for coffee. So we met for coffee and we sat down for three hours late. And in those three hours- Where did you guys meet? It was just this little primo coffee shop. I don't remember the exact name. But in Mm -hmm. those three hours, we decided to write a book together known as Radical Beauty. We wrote the six pillars, like the six main sections of the book on a napkin. So it was- Intention, energy, action, will, all these things combined. I remember seeing you guys collaborating. I, was gonna, I remember thinking, I mean, I didn't, again, I don't know you personally, but I remember thinking to myself, that's really cool that she was able to do that. Oh, yeah. So we wrote that book and that also became a New York Times bestseller. And to this mm-hmm. day, we collaborate. I'm doing part of the Journey to Wellbeing program. I'm doing all the app programming in October for his content. So we're still close collaborators. I love and respect Deepak very much. So I'm curious, Deepak is prolific in his writing, right? I think he's done like 90 plus books. What is that like? What does he like to write with? So he is endlessly creative, Mm -hmm. so articulate, and he's tapped in. 
Like he, I can say he's someone that he's very humble and like, he's not this, he always said, I'm not this like enlightened person. Like he's a normal human. I've been with him walking down the street in New York city and people ask him these questions. He's like, I don't know. I'm not like Buddha. You know, he's like, he's just very funny and humble, but yet writing he's not someone that has to rewrite something 10 times. Like he mm. tunes in and he writes and there's not that much editing. What about you? Do you have a little imposter syndrome writing with someone like Deepak? Like, oh my God, my writing has to be at a different level. So one thing he did say to me in the writing is make sure you substantiate what we're saying so we do not have to back down. So when I was writing Radical Beauty, I was a little bit over in the footnotes in backing everything up with studies because I didn't want to, God forbid, say something that could have been disputed later. So that definitely was a very researched book. You have a son. At this point, you're with your first son's yes. father. Yes. And how does that shift? Because now we're getting into sort of, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening nowadays around gender roles and how women should show up or how the masculine should show up in a fi family dynamic. You're very mm. much independent. You've been all over the world. You've seen everything. You're used to like, you've written bestsellers. So how does that affect your motherhood status? Like how, how did you shift or adjust to that? So I didn't know what kind of mother I was going to be. And I wasn't one of those women that was like, oh, I always you know, want to be a mom or I'm dying to be a mom. It was sort of that flow when it happened. I was, you know, I'm like, I'm ready. And then we got pregnant right away. And then suddenly I was a mom. There wasn't a lot of thinking about <laughs> it prior. So this baby shows up, my first son, Emerson, and it just like blew my mind, blew my world. And then I became automatically what you would call an attachment parent, meaning that baby never left my body. Mm -hmm. I mean, I breastfed till he was four, which in the West is considered a little bit unusual, but in the Philippines and in Africa, that isn't so unusual in many cultures. And so we were attached. And so one thing I'm really grateful for, Light, is that I can create and run a business and a podcast and write these books, but make my own schedule. So it continues to this day. Now I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old. So I am very hands-on. I pick them up. I put them down for naps. I play with them. I've never had a nanny, but it also means a very full life where I'm doing this podcast right now at this time because my baby's napping. And after bedtime, I often work late into the night and I find a way, and I do have house help, for me, I've loved motherhood, but I've given things up that just felt like it couldn't fit in anymore. For instance, client work. So I haven't been, you know, when I, when I got pregnant, I wasn't able to work with people in the same way. It was a natural progression, you know, living with them and traveling around the world. It was, oh, I'm going to focus. Now I'm going to build my brand Saluna so I can help work with more people. I have this online Saluna circle. So a lot of things have shifted from in-person to online because I really am so hands-on with my kids. So it does progress, but I can say that it doesn't mean you give up your creativity. I felt more creative being a mom. I've also mm. felt this real focus when I am working, not forced creativity, mm. but it's like, okay, this is happening. So when I sit down, there's incredible concentration now because I don't have time to like piddle around, you know, it's like I'm here and then I'm working and, you know, we'll go to the story of the latest book, like, because I, that was very much related to the birth of my second son. One of the big pain points of 
mothers, new mothers who, you know, sincerely want to meditate is their meditation practice kind of falls to the back burner because they're a new mother. And I'm curious about your experiences with that, how, how protective you were of your spiritual practices as a new mother. And then also, I'm just bringing this up because you mentioned it in the book. You don't have to go into great detail about it, but you said that your meditation practice helped you get clear about the fact that it was time to consciously uncouple from Emerson's father. And I wanted you to um, just kind of touch on that a little bit. Did you get like a voice saying to you, <laughs> you know, you oh, need yeah. to leave or was it just a feeling or how did you interpret what you were experiencing? Yes. So I'm very comfortable talking about that because I think it's an important subject because I think a lot of people stay in relationships because it's cushy, safe, comfortable. So the first, the first answer to your question is about my practice being a new mom. And I'll say that with a newborn, one thing I found was there was many hours of breastfeeding and I would often meditate while I was nursing. So it was like this practical way of being with the child, but also really just tuning in. Now I can say after many years of meditating, I get up before either of my sons because I know what it does for my life. So they get up at six. So I get up at five to meditate and I prioritize that. So I go to bed earlier, you know, so that evolves. The second part was I went through a really rock bottom part of my life now over five years ago where I lost my mom really suddenly. So I talk about this in the book as well. And I wasn't ready to talk. I was editing the fifth book when she passed and I wasn't ready to talk about it yet. So I'm actually talking about it in this book. It was so shocking, Light, because she was so healthy and so vibrant. Like she was the one that would help me cook for clients and I'd be tired and she'd be in there stirring the soups and doing things. But on Valentine's Day, we found out she had cancer and then she was gone March 29th. So it was six weeks and it was like, holy crap, like anything can happen in life. It was, I mean, even to this day, it's like hard to imagine that she was gone. Honestly, you know, it's just like, it takes a while to process grief. So anyways, she passed. And then the aftermath, it was like so much growth happens from these experiences. I think and part of it was this great, like epiphany, this great waking up of life is here. What do you want? What do you want to do with your time? So in that aftermath, a couple of things happened. I created my brand Saluna. It's the dark and the light. It's the sun and the moon. It came after that, and it was where I started really putting out spiritual offerings, like my practical enlightenment meditations, like our Saluna Circle, where we meditate and you know we have a theme every month. So it wasn't just books and recipes. It was courses that were holistic and products that were holistic. So that took a big shift. And the second thing is I started really looking at my relationship. And so I met my partner in the entertainment world. He was a great guy, but it was like when I was really in that world too. And we knew the same people. And anyways, I'll just say that he is an amazing human, but we didn't, it never felt really close, like the closeness that I wanted. And so I just started having these conversations. Like, are we getting closer? Are we going forward? How does this feel to you? So it was like after my mom passed. And then some months later, I remember we were on a trip and I I looked up at the full moon and it was in that moment light where I said, oh, and I just turned to him and I was like, I'm going to move out. It was like so clear. First like, draft. You just went right with it, huh? Yeah. And I just said, 
I think it's time to part. Mm. And so I did. And we maintained like, you know, there's been ups and downs. And when I got remarried, there was some murky periods. But I can say we have a really great relationship and mm-hmm. co-parenting. And the love and the connection that I feel with my husband, I think, oh, shit. Like, I couldn't, you know, it's so easy to stay in relationships that are comfortable. You know the same people. You have the same friend group. You've been around. You live in the house together. But I think of that fearlessness, like you said, when I was playing in the woods when I was little. And then I went backpacking. And it came in when I lost my mom. And I was like, so it was really intense. Like my dad couldn't, you know, he just checked out because they'd been married for 40 years. So it was me really talking to the doctors and me holding this newborn baby. Our son was not even a year old when this was happening and dealing with things. And so I was like, this doesn't really feel right. It's really scary to be a single mom and to move out of this situation, but I got to do it. When you met John at that dinner party, was it one of those situations where you didn't feel like going out, but then they twisted your arm and oh the next God. thing you know? <laughs> so, okay, so then I move out, right? And I went, so I met with one of the monks at SR at Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship, which has continued to be my guiding light. And what he said to me was, treat your home like an ashram for five months. He's like, don't worry about anything. Just go in. So for five months, like I went in. I mean, I'm talking barely leaving the house. I was running my business. I was taking care of my child, but I didn't go to dinner. I didn't do much. I was reading the Gita over and over again. I reread the Bible. I reread the Tao Te Ching. I was meditating like crazy. So after that period, I was like, okay, I feel, you know, after some time, it didn't happen immediately, but I was starting to just, yeah, like kind of get out a little bit more. And somebody came on my podcast and I wasn't friends with this guy. He was nice. He lived around and he's like, hey, there's this dinner party in Venice. So I don't know if this guy, I talked about it with John now. I don't know if this other guy thought it was a date. I did not think it was a date. Yes, he did think it was a date. (laughs) Okay, so but I show up at this dinner party and I didn't know anybody. And I was already like, I'm already pretty introverted late. So I was like, meh, meh. Like, I don't know if I really want to be here. Like, there were some really like outgoing people. And it was a bunch of podcasters, actually. Just like people that, anyways. So I was like, from the second I got there, I was like, I think I want to leave. But I will back up and say one of the things that Brother Satchidananda said to me is he always said, your soulmate is never going to be far from your circle. Because that's mm. the way spirit creates. It's not going to be like all the way in China necessarily. So if you have this urge, it could be, you know, online, but you have this urge to go to an unusual book signing or that's the way he said it. Something, just say yes. So he invited me to this dinner party. And so I went and I was like, eh. But then I started talking to John and he is so different than anything I had ever, you know, anyone I had ever been with. He's completely covered in tattoos. He's this big burly guy. But because of the practice light, I felt this connection. Like my intuition was like, yes, yes. And he said, and this is a guy who said he would never get married. This is a guy who said he would never have kids. He went in to get a vasectomy once. And he said within 15 minutes, he knew I was going to be his wife. At our wedding, which was only a few months later, all his friends were like, oh my gosh. He said we'd never commit. And I said, that's funny because the third day I knew him, he told me he loved me and that he did want to get married. So it just shows like time, space, it's nonlinear and things can happen like that.
So now you all have a child. You have a son. You have two kids. You're on your, you just published your sixth book, which is You Are More Than You Think You Are. I love how you structured it and you titled it using basically affirmations. I feel like I'm at Cafe Gratitude reading the book because every chapter is like, (laughs) you are a warrior. You are this, you are that. So talk a little bit about the evolution of this book over those past five books and why now? Why this book now? I don't plan to write a book, really. I I wait for that spanda, that inspiration. So this is during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I was 34 weeks pregnant with Moses, with our second son. And I remember the feeling, the energy, the idea of this book just came in like one download. It was very powerful. Mm -hmm. It was bring Yogananda's teachings forward, make them accessible to people, the ones that have helped you the most. These teachings are needed now. And it was such a strong message. Like, and this is how the story ties together. I didn't know what to do. So who do I reach out to? My dear friend, Deepak Chopra. And Deepak (laughs) said to me, I said, Deepak, I said, I have this feeling like he's always been there for me. I was like, I'm about to have a baby. Like, what do I do, Deepak? Right. He's always been a mentor, co-author, friend. And he said, Kimberly, he's like, you listen to that feeling. And he also said, this book belongs with Hay House. So Deepak and I had written our book with Random House. I had Harper Collins before that, but he said, this is a Hay House book. The next thing I know, he put me on an email with Reed, the president. And the next thing I know, Reed's like, well, what's your book about? And then three days later, I was presenting it over Zoom and I wrote one sample chapter. And then literally like three days before I gave birth to Moses, I signed my book deal. And then 60 days after I gave birth, I started writing. And the experience of this book was nothing like the other books. It just, like I would sit at this desk, which is in front of this podcast equipment. I would just sit there and it just came out. Like I felt like I had a newborn. My other son was four, no preschool, pandemic. And this book just came out somehow. It felt like it just came out of me. And so it was like the most easeful process it was the deepest process. I feel like I completely changed and went so deep in mm-hmm. myself. And, you know, I'm so grateful. Like, I feel like I went into layers of the true self. So the way the book is structured is the way Yogananda has taught, which is these three parts. Number one is move the blocks. And so that's why the first chapter is fearlessness because the 26 soul qualities in the Bhagavad Gita to create your most epic life, to live a God life, Godlike life, the number one quality is fearlessness. So you remove the doubt, the things that block you. And so that's why in that chapter, in that section, there's love, finding the love inside, wholeness. And then the second part of the book is where Yogananda talks about embodying who you really are. So we think we're this ego, what we look like, our achievements, da 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 da. And no, the true self is the intuition speaking to you, it is the peace inside of you. And then part three, is about creating. Because we said, you know, Yogananda said, use your will, create something no one else has ever done. He's not telling us to sit back and sit in the cave. He's saying to go create. So part three is where we talk about magnetism, abundance. And then the longest chapter of the book is you are a creator. And this is how I started writing books, like with his teachings, this is how I started creating everything, where you go in and you take this formless energy, your unique talents, and how do you channel it out into products, into websites, into books? It's very practical. The book is very practical because that's the way Yogananda has always taught as well. And these exercises are very practical. So it's that three-step process that I wanted to share because that is what has helped me the most. 
I have a question about your process. Uh, you know, normally when you write these sort of self-help books, it's your system, it's your principle, it's your thoughts, but you're representing Paramahansa Yogananda, who's got a very established body of knowledge. And you said it flowed. Did you have to like do a ton of research though beforehand oh. and like really get clear? Because you're you're citing him throughout the entire book. And oh, you know, Yogananda would have said it like this, and he thought about that, and this is the way he structured it. I mean, you, you went very deep in, into his body of knowledge. So how did you navigate that? How did you prepare yourself for that? So my purpose in the book, obviously you could go straight to his teachings, but my purpose was to show as, you know, me as a woman living in 2022, how this is accessible now, because a mm -hmm. lot of the teachings, autobiography of a yogi is dense and his commentary on the Gita is you know thousands of pages and mm -hmm. very few people are going to go through the pearls, like, like the real magic, like these jewels that are in these books locked up. And so my purpose was to bring them forward. The chapters in my book are very short, right? They're four or five pages. So you can get through a teaching and an idea, a concept, take away a meditation or an exercise in a, a night or two, right? But for me, and I say, you know, I went through thousands of pages. So I reread all of you know, I've shelves like journey to self-realization, the commentary on the Bible. I mean, not maybe every single piece, but most every essay and book he read out of my, everything. I went through it and I tried to distill down the ones I thought would be the most useful for this age now because his teachings are timeless. But again, a lot of them are lengthy. They're hidden in these books. So my purpose was saying, you know, what do people need to hear about now? So I, I know people need to hear about tuning into intuition. They need to know love is here. Love is an action. It's not something you need to get from other people or chasing it, chasing it. We need to know that our best stuff is here. This is how you create magic, not trying to emulate someone else or trying to compare, but it's here. So that was my intention. And I did go through thousands of pages. And then it was my honor to bring it forward, to bring my teacher's teachings forward. You probably in the process became one of the foremost authorities on Yogananda's work, right? I mean, you, you'd have to, to be able to simplify it as, it's like what Einstein said, if you don't, if you, yes. if you don't understand it well yes. enough, then you're not gonna be able to speak about it in a simple way. And you absolutely were able to translate that in a very accessible and easy way, which means you really have to understand it. And you really have to understand how it connects to real world issues that people are dealing with on a daily yes. basis. As a you know, somewhat householder living in the modern world. I certainly did my best. I redid the lessons during the process of writing the book and the self-realization fellowship like went through every word <laughs> to make sure that the quotes were presented in an authentic way. And they'd say, oh, you need to add this sentence before this is taken too out of context. To their credit, they really authenticated the book and I'm very appreciative of the monks and two nuns went through it thoroughly. Let's talk about some of the concepts in the book just to help people understand exactly, because a lot of people may not even know who Paramahansa Yogananda is, but just how yeah. you two were thinking about this. And I'm using that in present tense, because obviously in Vedic tradition, nobody really dies. They're just, their no. consciousness just shifts. So talk about spiritual growth. How do you think about or define spiritual growth? Because we hear that a lot on social media and, you know, it's important to do your inner work so you can grow spiritually. What does that even mean? Inside of us, and this is again coming from Yogananda and the Vedas, who, by the way, was the monk who brought yoga to the West. So that's who he mm -hmm. really is. He taught us yoga is not, I say this over, it's not 
warrior too. That's a tiny part. <laughs> Yoga is about connecting to the true self. So the true self is spirit, God, source, universe, whatever word you want to use. Don't get caught up in the language. It's what this expansion, this expansive part inside of you. So spiritual growth is learning to connect and identify with that more moment to moment versus the external limited part of us that ages and fades away. And like you said, eventually we're going to discard this body. So don't over identify with what you see in the mirror, what you list as your achievements. When, you know, in our conversation, like talking about the numbers, everything that I identified with was of the ego, was of numbers, was of the outside. So spiritual growth is where you learn to tap in to who you really are. And this is where all the attributes we talk about in the book, this is where you find peace. This is where you find love. This is where you find abundance, creativity. And then when you grow spiritually in this connection, your outer world changes and shifts. It changes from the inside out. And I always talk about beauty from the inside out. When you eat, when you live this way, your skin changes, your life becomes more beautiful. Everything comes from the inside out. If you want to change your life, if you want to write books, if you want to change your circumstances, it starts with spiritual growth. So it's not about religion. It's not about dogma. It's not about you know, one way. It's about connecting to this formless part of you more and more every day. This is why I love going into this detail we did on your story, because it's like yes. every pivotal moment in your life really occurred through going from the inside out, like seeing what the messaging was inside and then taking action after that. And, um, and I think you're absolutely right. The way my teacher says it in, in our tradition is establish yourself in being first, then perform action. That's the most efficient way to ultimately find your way to your purpose. So let's keep going with purpose. How do you think about purpose? What do you say to people who say, I don't know what my purpose is and, yes. and all of that? So there's a lot of detail about that in the book. That's a central concept as well. And the mm -hmm. way that I see purpose is twofold. Number one, we are all here to connect more to the true self, to God, to spirit, and to really create that personal connection and to embody that. And so part of that, when you connect in, is you start to embody these and connect to your gifts and your true expression, your unique way of being in the world. And then the second part is using that to serve serve the collective to help each other. So the first part is, like you said, you need to connect to beingness, to who you really are. And then you use that. There's the action part. Yogananda said life is chiefly service. So it's not like we sit back and, you know, we're just taking this in for ourselves. Then it's like, oh, the oneness, like I am you and you are me. And the more I flow along, and that's the beauty of how it ties together. Like when I was backpacking, since that time, I have never used the word stranger because when I was in Africa, when I was in Asia, when I was in Peru, this instant connection, when you go past this surface, this is not who we are. You feel the light. You can see it. You can connect to the love. So we are here to serve that. And so we serve each other. That's why the blog was successful. That's why the career started. It came from this place of sharing. Again, I wouldn't have used this exact language necessarily mm -hmm. didn't distill it down, but it comes from, oh, this is who I am. And this is what I want to share. This is how I want to help. Beautiful. And then something else you talk about is this idea of enlightenment. And that's kind of seen as the end goal of all the spiritual work and being on your purpose and everything. How are you thinking about or defining enlightenment? 
So it's not a destination, right? It's like we say, oh, like we think of enlightenment, like Buddha, Jesus, these people, these beings that are so embodied. And so what I talk about in the book is just getting on the path is going to massively upgrade your life. Getting on the path means we start to be more awake, more mm-hmm. alive, more awake to who we are. We start to see these shadows of like, oh, I was really identified with this. Or in the whole chapter, I talk about shame and really over-identifying with past behaviors that maybe we're not proud of. But when we start to go past all of that, just a little bit of awakening of like, oh, who I am is actually this changeless, formless part that's steady, that can sit back, that doesn't have to follow the same patterns, that can break out of the ancestral trends, that doesn't have to comment or say something nasty or gossipy because other people are saying it. There's a choice. And the choice is to identify more with my heart, the love, the light, (laughs) the inspiration. Little bit by little bit, we wake up more and more. So even just getting on the path, which is very practical. We We don't have a chance to talk about the practical aspects of this, but it's meditating as soon as you can before, you know, right when you wake up. So you're putting yourself in that flow. It's the foods that you eat. It's the ways in which you look at situations. It's like, there's so many practical aspects of this lifestyle. And that is a part of Yogananda's work. It's not just knowing. So there's knowing the truths, right? And that's great. But when you start to live the truth as action, that's realization. And that's really mm-hmm. what he taught. Self-realization is where we start to live this as a lifestyle. And then you do feel more joy. And then you feel more peace and connection and everything we're looking for. It's not this big, scary term. Enlightenment is just a little bit more awakening over time. How do you think about success these days for you personally, knowing everything you know, all the experiences? What's your, what's your idea of success for yourself? Success is the more I identify with the true self. That's mm-hmm. it. It's like, you know what I realized, Light? All this stuff out here. We are meant to create, we are meant to help and serve. So don't get me wrong. I just said that. But ultimately, in the grand scheme, how much we achieve, how much money we have, all the lists, like it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, what matters is the love, is the kindness, is the connection, is the more you connect, that is the real success, the inner peace. All of the aspects of the true self, the more you align to that, that is when your life is a success. So it sounds like you've been on a path, especially since your three-year-long backpacking trip. But I'm curious if there was something, one thing that you could go back and and sort of whisper to young Kimberly's ear and her dreams (laughs) at that age when you were first starting off on this journey of living in New York and whatnot, what would you say to her? Well, I look at those challenges and, you know, I, I get this question sometimes light and I would say like, you know, and I love the way you've done this interview because we think about, oh my God, when I was so focused on what I look like, right? Because I was like <laughs> the non-white girl and I think about trying to be skinny. And I don't think if I didn't have all of those experiences, the grit of pushing me inward, like there's so much pain, so much suffering. It would, it, I, like I had to go through all of it. I had to mm-hmm. go through the pain of losing my mom like that, you know, I see the beauty of it to like push me inward deeper and deeper. So I don't think I would have said anything to her because I would want that journey to unfold. I would have, I would, you know, now I look back and I say, I I don't regret. You don't want to shy away from the pain and the darkness. You, You feel it, you let it in, you let it teach you, you bring your light to the darkness. And then that grittiness 
I think that's where you learn the lessons. Mm-hmm. You're not going to learn it just like living this very cushy, happy surface, fake, you know, life. I remind myself now of the lessons I write about in the book, like tune inward. It's all inside. That is the main message. It's like we're always looking outside, but it really is there. The true self is in there. You have everything right now that you need to carry yourself forward. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. I like to end these conversations looping back around to childhood. And you've already made reference to the fact that your affinity with being outside and in nature allowed you to be comfortable both with yourself as well as with, you know, just the changes that that I feel like one of the most underrated aspects of nature is the fact that it's always changing. And the more you can adapt to the ever-changing nature of of nature, (laughs) the more you thrive in life, meaning the more present you are, the more tuned in you are to your intuition. And that's really the key to thrivability. And you've, you've exemplified that through the stories that you've been telling in your book and on your podcast and in your writing and how you live your life. You know, we talked about before the interview officially started, how you spend a lot of time outside in waterfalls and whatnot and Kauai. And, and people may look at that and go, well, you know, she's privileged. She lives in Hawaii and Kauai, but you created that. You created that through following your heart. And that's, that's <laughs> yes. your message. You can create whatever you want to create. If you stop trying to figure it out intellectually and just start tuning in to what's being communicated to you and trust it and take the leap of faith and allow that to unveil your purpose. (laughs) And that's the way the greats have always done it. That's what Yogananda talks about in his book, Autobiography of a Yogi, right? That's one of the things that inspired me to have more trust and faith in my journey. So thank you so much for showing up as many times as you had to show up and trusting as much as you had to trust. And for putting yourself out there and your thoughts out there and your stories out there and dealing with those people emailing you saying you you misspelled a word here and not letting that stop you, you know, because that's a part of it. If you're creating in the way that you're creating and the way that I've created, you have to be okay with people wanting to correct you because that's the sense of control that they have and people leaving bad reviews for your work that you poured your heart and your soul into. That's a big part of it. Thank you. Yes. One thing I just want to say as we, as we close up here, light is don't get sidetracked by other people's opinions. Cause again, it's noise. It is the external. And the biggest lesson I learned from nature as well is this beingness. So you think about the tree, we gnarled and maybe all bent. It's not prideful. It's not overly self-deprecating. It just is. So I think the more we live and flow and not overthink and not let other people come in and derail us, Things are going to work out great. <laughs> Flow. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you so it was a much. pleasure and honor. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to, to speak to you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kimberly Schneider. If you're not already, make sure to follow Kimberly on social media at underscore Kimberly Schneider. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y. S-N-Y-D-E-R. You can also grab a copy of her most recent book, You Are More Than You Think You Are, everywhere books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with other luminaries, such as Ed Milet, 
director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, author Stephen Pressfield, and many others who have shared how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search past interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. So if you want to hear episodes specifically about people who have overcome financial struggles or who've taken leaps of faith or who've navigated health challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes at that same link, lightwatkins.com slash show. And you can also watch these interviews on YouTube. I record every podcast episode through Zoom, and then I upload it on my YouTube channel, which is at Light Watkins Podcast. If you just search that, you'll find it. And finally, I post the raw, unedited version of each episode in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and end of each episode, you can listen to all of that after you join my online community, which is thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will that give you access to those unedited versions of the podcasts, which get released a day early, but you also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge. And there are other 108-day challenges and masterclasses as well. One way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast. I know everybody says it, but it's really, really important. And it's super simple to do. If you're listening to this on your Apple Podcasts app, just look at your device, tap on the name of the show, The Light Watkin Show, and then scroll down past the seven or eight previous episodes and you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you really like this episode and you feel inspired, click that star on the far right and you've left a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile and leave a couple of lines about what you specifically like about this podcast, then you left a review and that will help the podcast to go further up in the search results when somebody needs some inspiration and they're searching for a podcast that will provide them with that. So thank you in advance for leaving your rating and or review. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking the leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking your leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.